0: O God, startle us with your word of faith, hope, and love. Help us to hear your voice and to be teachable to it. And in this hour, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, for reasons I can't quite explain, most Sundays I begin the sermon by telling you what Sunday it is. This is the sermon for Sunday, June, the blah blah blah, and then I start into the Word. I'm not sure why I do that. You know, I I suppose that if people are searching for a particular sermon on our website, it might help them know they're watching the right one, but it's written right there below the video. I wonder if there's a funny subconscious thing going on in my telling you what Sunday it is. Sometimes it occurs to me that most of us don't even know what the date is these days. And more broadly speaking, I'm not exactly sure it matters. One of the observations that I hear about living in this time of pandemic is that it's Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, that's a reference to that Bill Murray movie from a couple of decades ago about a man who keeps on waking up and reliving the same day over and over and over again. That's what it feels like much of the time. With outings and family gatherings and vacations and special events mostly on hold for the next several months, we wake up each day to much of the same routine. Even weekdays and weekends sometimes feel very much the same. While our days keep feeling the same, I have a sense that right now, in these days and weeks here in mid-August, a transition is taking place in our thinking. It's late summer. Parents are worried about what school is going to be like. Summer is turning to fall with the creeping awareness that in a few months, gathering outside in places like this one will be less comfortable than it is now. News of vaccine trials surround us, but so does the news of how long it will take to vaccinate enough people to bring us all to a safe place. There is a disappearing sense that the pandemic is a season of weeks or months, and an increasing sense that it may be this way for a good long while. Now before I lose you and you turn off your device thinking this is a sermon about despair, let me assure you that it is not. This is a sermon about finding our way to a balanced, faithful, and sustainable life in the midst of these days. These days right now. Life now is a time in which you can thrive. No doubt about it, There is a threat before us in these days and weeks or maybe a few months. But I'm not just talking about the coronavirus itself. The threat is that as this time of pandemic wears on, some of us may lose our patience and our hope. Back in March and April, this all seemed pretty manageable if we only thought it would last a few weeks or maybe a few months. But now that we know that it's going to be with us for a while, well that might be truly discouraging. You now, Among the church pastoral staff, we've started to hear people who were doing pretty well back in May and in June, telling us that they're starting to get genuinely lonely, to miss the regular rhythms of church and community with their friends. Work at home is becoming tiresome for people. Parents are concerned about the challenges of the upcoming school year, Government assistance to people who need it is in question. Delayed medical care is becoming a real issue. And some folks are becoming depressed by the whole thing, while others have run out of patience and they're returning to some of their regular routines, even in ways that are dangerous. This is an important time for us to talk, and here's why. I do believe that it's important. I do believe that it's possible for us to live well and even thrive in these days. But to do so is going to require solid and faithful grounding, a willingness to lean into God's creative power among us. I've been preaching these last several weeks about what it means to be teachable as people of faith, to be able to hear God's voice and learn from it and follow. I've talked about things that tend to distract us from God's voice and about how voices in scripture lead us toward living lives of justice. This week, I'm gonna talk about authority. Authority, it's not the most popular word in our culture. Americans hold values like individual rights and self-determination in very high regard. And this tends to lead to suspicion about words like authority, but although we may bristle at the thought of authority, as Bob Dylan so famously put us, put it, all of us serve somebody. Every one of us has powerful influences in our lives that drive the way that we think and act and make our choices. There are helpful sources of authority, and there are harmful ones. And in difficult times when we are stretched and stressed and challenged, it makes a great deal of difference whether the sources of authority in our lives are the right ones. So today, I thought I might talk a little bit about what it means to be teachable to God's good authority, God's creative and hopeful authority, and to be teachable that way in these days of pandemic. So one way of thinking about god's authority comes out of the methodist tradition john wesley is their chief theologian and he talked about four sources of faith four sources of faith four ways that god's voice seeks to be teachable in our lives the four sources are scripture tradition experience and reason Scripture first. Well, of course, that's the guidance and wisdom that we receive from God's word in the Bible. Tradition, then, includes the sources of God's voice that may not be in the Bible, but are tried and true parts of our religious practice. Prayers or music, rituals like baptism or the marriage vows that we take. These may be sources of God's voice that are influential for us. Experience speaks to the many other ways that God's voice may reach us. The natural world, the voice of another person or something that we read, a life experience that is central to who we are. And reason, reason refers to the God-given ability to look at these various forms of evidence and to discern between them. Not just because of what we may want on our own, but because the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to seek God's will. But what does all that have to do with authority? Well, we see where authority exists in our lives when one of these sources of God's voice contradicts another one, and then we have to make a choice. Perhaps, for instance, a woman feels called to ministry, hearing God's voice through experience is what it is to receive a call. But this is a woman who is a part of a denomination that does not ordain women. That's an uh, an example of hearing God's voice through tradition. So in this situation, a choice must be made between sources of authority. Another example, perhaps a person must form an opinion about same gender marriage. The Bible, scripture, seems to say one thing, perhaps, but a person's reason, what we understand about the context in which those scriptures were written, and what they meant then and what they mean now, that may suggest something else. Again, a choice has to be made. You can probably imagine that by describing God's voice through these four sources of faith, John Wesley was not asserting that one of them always wins over the others. Instead, all of them are valuable and they will always be in So faithful living means being aware of the authorities toward which we tend to lean, and praying that God will lead us to wise choices. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience, these are most often good and legitimate sources of authority, and when one of them is not good, our hope is that one of the others will win out. An extension of this thinking about authority is that there are other sources of authority that come from beyond the realm of faith. Many of these other sources of authority may be valuable in small amounts, but when they gain too much influences in our lives, they become harmful. Convenient examples here are influences like money or work, the temptation to compare ourselves to others, enjoyable habits that can slide into harmful addictions. All of these things might be helpful to us in limited quantities, but when they become sources of too much authority they lead us to ruin. There are other less tangible examples of harmful authority. Fear is one that comes to mind. Fear is a good personal resource when it keeps us from harm. But it's a negative source of authority when it keeps us from living and loving. Sadness is another one. When times are hard, it is important for us to acknowledge our feelings. Bad feelings like grief and lament are a part of healthy living. But when sadness lapses into despair, we again become unable to live and to love. I'm concerned that as the pandemic continues, our fears and our sadnesses may threaten to take us over. So too may the despair that comes from feeling overwhelmed or stuck, such that we might want to give up or take risks that don't make much sense. Here's where I'd like to tell a story from our faith. One where I see a giant of faithful biblical living stuck in a hard time but still able to make good decisions because the authority in his life was strong. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah was active in the time of Jerusalem at the time when that city was destroyed by the Babylonians. It is probably hard for American folk like us to imagine the dire circumstances this would have presented though I'm sure people in places like Syria or Sudan might know. Not only would basic needs like food and water have been in short supply, but when the siege became an invasion, the brutality and ruin that came to the people is simply unimaginable. During this time, Jeremiah had been thrown into prison for his activism, he knew where the people of Jerusalem had gone wrong and what had led them to this tragic circumstance. He had a sense of what, might they, what one day might lead them out of it. But the king in Jerusalem did not want to hear it and shut Jeremiah away. In the midst of all of this chaos, Jeremiah receives a visitor in prison. A relative has died. And Jeremiah is informed that by law he has the first rights to purchase a field outside the city that belonged to the deceased. What a weird detail to include in a Bible story. Who in their right mind would spend money to buy a field in the lands surrounding Jerusalem when the city was about to face disaster? But the story is there because Jeremiah responds in a surprising and creative way. Jeremiah, you see, buys the field. And not only does he buy it, but he sends word out from the prison that he has done so because he wants his followers to know. And he makes sure that the deed of purchase is secured so that it will last a long, long time. He does this according to his own words because he believes in God's promise that houses and fields shall again be bought in this land. To people who have already been taken into exile in Babylon, he tells them to make a life for themselves until the day comes when they can return home. He says these words, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, even in the midst of dire circumstances, Jeremiah finds ways to be faithful in the situation that he has. It reminded me of another story from history, one that you might have read about recently. The historian Eric Larson's latest book is The Splendid and the Vile. It's a history of the days of the Blitz in London during the Second World War. Here's a taste of what life was like in those days, reading from the book. Towns and villages took down street signs and limited the sale of maps to people holding police-issued permits. Farmers left old cars and trucks in their fields as obstacles against gliders laden with soldiers. The government issued 35 million gas masks to civilians who carried them to work and to church and kept them at their bedsides. London's mailboxes received a special coating of yellow paint that changed color in the presence of poison gas. Strict blackout rules so darkened the streets of the city that it became nearly impossible to recognize a visitor at a train station after dark. On moonless nights, pedestrians stepped in front of cars and buses and walked into light stanchions and fell off of curbs and tripped over sandbags. This is what life was like. And yet Larson writes the book, not to talk about the dire circumstances alone, but to talk about the ways people courageously lived in the midst of those times and how Winston Churchill's life demonstrated hope in an hope in an authority that was higher and greater than fear. Again, in Larson's words, mine is an account that delves into how Churchill and his circle went about surviving on a daily basis, the dark moments and the light, the romantic entanglements and debacles, the sorrows and laughter, and the odd little episodes that reveal how life was really lived under Hitler's tempest of steel. This was the year in which Churchill became Churchill, the cigar-smoking bulldog we all think we know, when he made his greatest speeches and showed the world what courage and leadership looked like. You know, I'll admit, I've taken to reading this book lately out of a strange sort of comfort it brings me. In the midst of all of our current concerns and unknowns, it's easy to feel a bit unhinged at times. And I find some calm and strength in knowing that there have been other hard times in the history of the world, and that one way or another, God will see us through. It's not so much a denial or escapism from the sufferings we face right now, which are real. But rather a reminder to myself that human persons have a great capacity to live and thrive even in uncertainty. But we have to know where real authority lies and refuse to allow fear or despair to be our greatest authority in life. The Blitz of London and the exile from Jerusalem, those are dramatic examples But not all of the ways that we might live and thrive today are all that complicated. And so I want to end by sharing a simpler story, a story more local to us at Knox. A week ago, Christina Hahn, Knox's organist, and her spouse, Allison, they came up with an idea. You see, Christina and Allison are both musicians, players as well as teachers. And so they share with many friends and students a frustration about these days of pandemic. It's hard to do what they love and do best. It's hard to make music the way they did. Not only are the symphony and the opera closed, but student concerts and recitals aren't happening the same way. And even rehearsal and instruction have become limited and difficult. This, of course, is not to mention the ways that church music has been limited. But last week, Christina and Allison decided that there was something that they could do. They got a hold of a portable piano and an amplifier and a couple of microphones, and they started to call their students. They also called their neighbors. The people who live in the homes closest to theirs and they called friends in a neighborhood book club that they're part of they told them all that on friday night there would be music the students came over and they played and they sang neighbors brought lawn chairs and food and drinks and their children and at safe distances they spread out around the yard and they enjoyed a friday night with a concert. Musicians were musicians, and neighbors were neighbors. And the next day, the phones, calls, and the emails, and the texts reflected that it was one of the most important and uplifting things that had happened on their block in the last several months. In the midst of the pandemic, these friends were living and thriving, fear and despair would not be their authority. This was perhaps the most important story for me to share with you today, because it is my sense that this is the direction that we need to begin to move as a church. At some point, the pandemic will come to an end, yes. But for now, it is with us for a while. And rather than counting the days, before 10 or 15 or 25 of us can nervously gather in the sanctuary or the Knox Commons, like we were used to doing before, we need to start thinking about now, about now, about ways we can connect and care, serve and worship, live and thrive together and keep being the church in the situation that we've got. It is possible for us to do this, to be church together, creatively and safely. I've had such energetic and hopeful conversations in the last couple of weeks with church staff and leadership who are excited about this. And today I want to share with you a special invitation to respond to this sermon by sharing your reactions and any ideas you may have. Send me an email or call me. Talk to one another and brainstorm together. Send this sermon to a Knox member you fear might have stopped watching by now, or someone else you know. What do they think? What ideas do you have? This is going to feel new and different for us, yes. But let's be teachable people of faith. Fear and despair will not be our authority. We are God's people and we can live and thrive in this season. Grace and peace be to you this day.